Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 187, number 187. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you may list them in the comments section on Podbean. Either way works. So let's get to the uh, the big gun news of the day is that Wayne LaPierre of the, I even forget, I think he's the, he used to be executive vice president, now I think he's CEO, whatever he is of the NRA. He's, he's functionally the president of the NRA. Um, the NRA has a president and now they've created this other greater position the, the president is now just a figurehead and has been since uh, the last the last NRA president that actually was important was uh, Charlton Heston um, he was a guy man I mean everybody else was behind him and in the background when he could no longer continue and he was he was elected president for like four terms I think three or four terms um, which was beyond what that position was envisioned to be um, simply because he was such a powerful figure and our gun rights were completely under assault I mean you know well they always are it seems like but you know uh, he is a guy who, who basically made sure that we had some gun rights. We have gun rights today because of Charlton Heston. He was high profile. Uh, he was a guy who uh, was was just very important. But after he left, Wayne LaPierre, the guy who had kind of worked his way up the, the corporation, you know, the company man who'd worked his way up, uh, he basically created for himself a position which made the NRA president, uh, effectively a figurehead. I mean, who can even name him who he is today? I mean, you could you have to. I'd have to run to my American Rifleman magazine and kind of look up the president's column. I, I don't even keep track of him. It just it's been one irrelevant guy after another. Um, they have no power. The last one that tried to have some power and get rid of Wayne Lapierre was Oliver North. And I'm not sure he was a really great selection. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things with Oliver North, a lot of baggage. Um, you know, so anyway, um, Oliver North was the last guy. I tried to get rid of him, couldn't. Wayne LaPierre has got to be in his mid, maybe even late 70s now. So, you know, hey, giving it up isn't, it isn't like he's in the prime of his uh, career. And he's been surrounded in controversy. Um some of it is probably legit some of it isn't legit um i will tell you that some of the stuff like okay he got about thirty forty thousand dollars and this is just coming through i don't have any inside baseball information on this obviously this is just kind of what i gleaned from sources um what was it thirty forty thousand dollars worth of maybe it was more i don't know but anyway a lot of money in clothes okay a lot of money in clothes um, well, that's because his job for years was kind of being the go-between of the organization and a lot of the very wealthy kind of in-the-background donors. And, you know, with those people, I do not travel in those circles, obviously, because I don't think they'd be very impressed with my Walmart uh, <laughs> wardrobe. Um, but, you know, you don't go to a meeting with those guys unless you're wearing the right clothes and the right clothes are the very expensive suits that are tailored you know it is the two hundred dollar neckties you know it is the four hundred dollar shoes and and i may even have these these numbers woefully under it may be a ten thousand dollar suit i mean you just don't show up to these guys looking like you know the ragman wandering in you have to come in and they size you up right then and there they see how you're dressed they see how you comport yourself and you get to you know then you can kind of talk to them on an even playing field so 
Uh, you know, it's it's part. You you have to act the part. You have to be part of the club. The club does not take off the rack suits from J C Penny. You know, I mean, they don't wear plastic cufflinks. You know, it just it's just that simple. So you got to dress a guy up, and in his defense, uh, you know his his efforts at raising money have yielded like 40 50 million bucks so you look at the investment in his wardrobe not that bad uh charter jets again you would never put charlton heston just you know they don't when i travel for my job somebody you know hands me an itinerary and an electron with an electronic ticket number on it same thing for a rent a car and they tell me I have a room at whatever whatever hotel, and it's up to me to get there and, and get it done. Um, you don't do that to a Charlton Heston, and then after he was gone, a Wayne LaPierre, you don't put them on a commercial plane. You know, you just don't. You have to charter a plane for them. Security reasons being a huge part, you know. Look at, look at how goofy people act today. You know, we live in a country where, pe- where acting the fool is is uh lionized so you know these guys can't travel in public so we got to travel them around in these charter jets i mean that's way it goes it just way it goes um you know a lot of people not aggressive enough on the lawsuits you know uh, that would support the second amendment maybe yes maybe no all of that is going to come out i'm sure they will uncover some misspending because they always do i mean if you think wayne lapierre is a crook then you obviously haven't been paying attention to your local senators and probably your local congressmen who are you know the biggest crooks of our time you know there's no it's not a it's not a secret this guy menendez you know finding gold bars in the uh pockets of his suit coat I mean, come on. I mean, you want to talk real corruption. It's in the government. It's not in the, you know, the top guy of the NRA. That's just, it's just not. Um, a lot of the people who didn't like LaPierre <clears throat> were going to say, just could commit the truth. In the gun community, there are what I call the freedom riders. And that is, they're too cheap to pay their NRA dues so they find something about the organization they quote don't like and that they oh, I'm not going to support them because of this da 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 almost every one of those guys I've run across is a cheapskate it's not based on principle it's based on the fact they don't want to give up 30 40 bucks a year to put towards their uh, their gun rights you know hey uh, you know it's way it goes i mean every every interest group has to have somebody sticking up for them or your rights are going to get smoked i mean you know the guys who are going to take the next burn are the classic car guys because i tell you they want to get rid of gasoline and if you've got a 1970 mustang mach 1 you know unless you can convert it to batteries which isn't (laughs) You're, you're not going to have gasoline. And you say, oh, no, how could that be? Well, you know, it's look how they're even trying to make gas stoves and refrigerators illegal. You think they're not going to come after all these guys who zoom around in their muscle cars? And I'm, I'm a car guy in, in many ways. I love cars. I love them. Um, but I can see the handwriting's on the wall. Handwriting is on the wall. Um just like for those of us who are reloaders you know don't think for a minute that they're not gonna they've already tried lead as a toxic substance from there it's gonna be the powder i mean it's gonna go on and on so you have to have somebody who's sticking up for you and you know they may not be perfect but it's it's kind of what you've got so that's it the the biggest gripe i had with them is apparently this last go around they ousted Willis Lee, who was the uh, uh, first vice president, uh, you know, he's a West Point guy, retired Army lieutenant colonel, um, 
I don't know if he was a Desert Storm veteran. I know he was an Iraq War veteran. Uh, solid dude. Very good guy. And he kind of got ousted. I'm sure he I'm sure he got crossways of Wayne LaPierre. And, uh, you know, kind of got moved out of the, out of the AO. And uh, <clears throat> AO meaning Area of Operations, the NRA headquarters. Um, so I, I think that that's a... Uh, you know, that was a shame, because I think he was a guy who could have represented us really well. Articulate guy, smart, obviously educated, obviously with, you know, some really good bona fides there as far as being uh, uh, the war veteran and, and a guy who's, you know, contributed to the future of the country. So uh, he was moved out, so we've got whoever whoever was left. Uh, I, I think one of them is this guy Bob Barr, who I, uh, you know, I don't know any that much about him. I think he, I think he was like a Reagan Bush guy, and uh, there was something about him and gambling. I don't know, you know, I don't know. He's never really. Whenever I get the, <laughs> the, I think I voted against him every time for the board of directors. You know, when you get that massive ballot. And, and you get all these these crumbs on there who, in my opinion, they don't do anything. A couple of ex-basketball players, a couple of this, a couple of that, you know, actors and all the rest of it. Um, and, and plus the fact that no functioning organization that I know of has a board of directors that's like 75 people. It seems to me like that's so big that that's just so their friends can get in. Um, and then they don't really do anything. How do you get a consensus, you know? And do these guys even show up at the meetings? I mean, I don't know. Um, that that all needs to be updated. I think that, that was kind of a 1970s model where you had these guys interspersed around the country and they could go talk to gun clubs and and do that kind of stuff i don't think they're really doing that anymore so i think it's been more of a kind of a rich person's honorarium thing that uh that people do so anyway uh yeah this is the first step for the nra kind of updating itself still good though i mean it's it's good the training all that stuff is good uh, Institute for Legislative Action is good. I mean, you know, and it's functionally, you got to admit, even if you hate the NRA, they've been the bullet magnet that the liberals all talk about, you know, like stupid Hillary Clinton, you know, all the rest of them. They'll vilify the NRA, but these other organizations are kind of coming in and they're the ones filing the lawsuits. They're getting a lot of legislative wins. And uh, right now, you know, they're too small and too fast to target. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all about the gamesmanship and all that. And uh, uh, it's, it's it. But, you know, I can well accept Wayne LaPierre. And if there's been some, if there's been some questionable spending, so be it, over, you know, the public, the public affairs and public trust of a Hillary Clinton or the rest of these people who are up on Capitol Hill who are just out for themselves or have been on Capitol Hill in her case um, you know <laughs> wait till wait till uh, they they finally spring the uh, it seems like they're springing the list that uh, maybe maybe Bill maybe husband Bill was down at uh, Epstein Island uh? maybe he and Prince Andrew were kind of high-fiving down there isn't that isn't that a disgusting i mean what kind of rot is that 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 kind of place existed that kind of guy was around and he was connected to all these people that's what broke up bill gates's marriage gee his wife found out that he'd been he'd been visiting you know the little pedophile uh runaway human trafficking island and uh, that was one of the things that contributed so uh, yeah a lot of people and those are just the names that we know and suspect um, chances are it's a lot bigger a whole lot bigger which brings us into the 
the weirdness of our legal system. Um, you know, all of this business around Trump and the 14th Amendment, the cooler heads, the people who actually do an analysis say there's nothing there. But this is getting so blown up out of proportion that it's 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 crazy and uh, you know why are they so scared of Donald Trump and I guess they're so scared of him because he is not controlled by the deep state and the establishment you know the Mitt Romney's can't call him up on the phone and tell him what to do um, and there's there's a whole bunch of other ones too yeah the Cheneys the Cheneys talk about the most out for yourselves you know, the hiding behind the flag, hiding behind, you know, patriotism and public service. And it turns out they're dirtbags that have just been out for themselves. And, uh, you know, there's actually that movie about Dick Cheney showing what a ruthless, <laughs> spineless dude he was. And uh, I don't know how much of that is real, how much is fiction. I assume most of it is real. And... Uh, you know, I don't have, I don't have a whole lot of uh, um, joy in my heart for the Dick Cheneys and the the Bush family. Seems like I got two, <laughs> I got two all expense paid trips to the uh, Middle East because of them, because of what they were doing. So, um, you know, I I still, you know, when you, when you look back in the context of what were we actually doing. And I know what we said we were doing, but I don't know if that was actually what we were doing. But that's those are bigger questions for another day. So anyway, I um, oh, got some another interesting thing. Um, if you are in the eastern Kansas, western Missouri area, there is on February seventeenth, twenty twenty-four. And I did write twenty twenty-three on my. Yeah, do you guys do that too? 20, you know, it takes me about four months to where I'm putting the correct date on things. But anyway, February 17th, 2024, at the River Center in Leavenworth, Kansas, the town of Leavenworth, not the military post, which is right next to it, but in the town, there is a military show. I've gone to this thing in the past, and it's pretty good. Um, you never know what you're going to see. Uh, they have tables there, and vendors. They say it's a military show, but... It's, it's not a show as in, hey, this is my cool collection, although there may be something like that there. Uh, mostly it's dealers who are selling Militaria. So um, if you are a Militaria collector or you need accessories for your vintage uh, military arms, that's a good place to go. I found all kinds of good things there that I've needed. Uh, the latest one I just told friend of the podcast um, – because we're gonna go hopefully we're gonna hopefully all the pieces fall in we can, we're gonna go uh, yeah I had a pair of wartime Bushnell binoculars um, I think that yeah were they called they weren't called Bushnell then they're called a uh, Bosch and Loam they were Bosch and Loam binoculars they became Bushnell but the Bosch and Loam binoculars I had um, did not have a case for and lo and behold there was a guy who had like six or seven of the of the cases for him no binoculars in them just the cases so I picked it up been and now I've got my binos have a home so um, it's it's a great place you can find stuff like that I found I was needing some carbine parts this is going back a while but I was needing some carbine parts guy had them uh, you know there's just always kind of you know there may be something there that you've been looking for that you need um, nice deal I thought I got a Webley holster there nice RAF one yeah really like that so anyway, February 17th, the Riverfront Center in Leavenworth, Kansas. And I don't know when it starts. You could probably Google it. I would assume that if you're there at 9 o'clock, you're probably safe. Uh, not a whole lot of gun news available, but I do have to report on, uh, since I've been shooting a little bit of black powder cartridge, one of the things that's always driven me crazy about black powder cartridges is the fact that both black powder and the substitutes stain the cases and they look really grody. Now I realize from a historical context 
that's probably the way they would look you know because the buffalo hunters reloaded their own they would cast their own bullets and and do the things they needed to do to uh, reload their cases i know the uh, the army had kits for reloading 45 70 cases um and probably anybody who reloaded ammunition in that era the cases probably looked pretty funky you know they're they got this dark tarnished stains on them and everything um i've just never cared for that and so i've tried a variety of ways i tried brasso i tried everything um nothing really worked um but i decided it was just something i'd have to live with um then a few years ago couple of acquaintances of mine were telling me about um, wet tumbling with the stainless steel pins in the water and all that and I kind of looked into it and it was just too expensive and I hate dealing with water when it comes to hand loading brass I mean I don't mind washing brass a little bit but then you got to wait for them to dry and you know I, I'm not really into using water around it but you know hey that's the way it is so uh, I never, I, I just kind of was dry tumbling. And for all my smokeless stuff, the dry tumbling is fine. I mean, um, wet tumbling, though, I, I was, uh, with my latest thing, I bought some um, 50, 70 cases. And, of course, after the first go-round, they look pretty ratty with all the tarnish and staining. So I, I took the plunge, and I went in minimal, which... I figure I'll do the wet tumbling for these black powder cartridge cases because I do 4570 and I do 5070 and I do 577 450 Martini Henry. So I got a the you know the I think with a coupon it was $59 the Harbor Freight two barrel tumbler. Uh, from there I got some stainless steel pins, watched a few videos and on YouTube and basically you know I wet tumbled my uh, um, cases and they came out very very well uh, one of the most helpful uh, set of videos was on British muzzle loaders um, I think his name is Rob McKenzie he kinda goes by Rob Enfield anything you wanna know about the Victorian era through the end of World War II um, anything you wanna know about British and Commonwealth stuff uh, definitely you know check that out and and very helpful with hand loading and even very helpful with all these uh, you know case preparation and and a uh, lot of these things that are going on when you have to you know when you're trying to replicate service style ammunition and uh, you know, he, he passed on some very, he, he has a lot of good information on the rifles, and you can see what he's tried, you can see the results, does a very comprehensive job. So, uh, he also had it on how to clean it and how to do it, and, uh, you know, I use the Harbor Freight Tumbler, it's got two barrels, you know, it's, um, it is not fancy equipment, but that's, I don't need it fancy, but I put it in, the, the long story short is you put in a little bit of this detergent called Lemmy Shine, and you put in a little bit of Dawn, and you put in water and the pins, and you just let this thing roll for, I you know, I let it roll for from 1.30 to 4.30, so three hours, and there are some people who say after every hour kind of change the water. You will notice it's the world's blackest water when it comes out of there. It looks, it looks like it's it's looks like a thin black paint coming out of there it's it's really amazing but uh anyway this black water comes out and the cases are are nice uh some people put in a lot more effort in because they want them to shine like brand new i really don't um as long as all that staining and tarnish is gone and it looks like a a brass case i'm, I'm pretty happy so um it's not bad all i needed was the I needed a thing of Lemmy Shine, which I bought in. It's a um, kind of a detergent booster, I think, you put in your dishwasher. It, it's basically citric acid is what it is. And um, I got that. I got a little thing of Dawn. I got a strainer, the $7 strainer. 
Um, a fine mesh strainer will pick up the pins. I got the pins off of Amazon. They were $17 for like two and a half pounds, which is fine. You know, that, that's that's a perfect an amount. And uh, then I got the Harbor Freight deal, and that was it. That's, that's all. It's just water from there on, you know. So um, very, very good. Uh, for my other stuff, unless brass is really really tarnished and you know every once in a while you have some of those cases that are you know they get mixed in with yours they're really tarnished i suppose i could put them in you know and do those too and get them get them looking better but uh i i like the media stuff just because it's dry it's it's cool it works um and this is the you know this is wet i mean and it takes uh when you look at the the interesting part is when you look at the frankfurt arsenal wet tumbling apparatus which is much larger has much more capacity but um, I saw the videos on it and just the getting the water out getting the pins separated and all the rest of it it's a lot more work than I really want to do <laughs> so uh, I'm just I'm very happy with the Harbor Freight deal and uh, you know you can investigate those things yourselves there's even guys who take four inch pcv pipe and make their own tumbler barrel that's bigger for the harbor freight uh tumbler and, and do all that and you know that's all great that's that's not me i don't really need that i'm really not doing more than 20 to 40 cases which i this machine in its current configuration has a well enough capacity to do that i could probably do I could probably do 80 cases if I used both barrels, you know. So, you know, that's that's a lot of black powder cartridge shooting for me anyway. So that's that. It's 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 good. And hey, I'm into it for less than a hundred bucks. I mean, that's not. I'm so sick and tired of everything ripping the wallet off my off my trousers. You know, I mean, holy cow! It's it's nice to get into something that's a lot less. It just really is. Okay, that about ends the first part, so we can start my favorite part, which is questions and answers. And I've got some interesting ones this time. First one is the Lee Enfield number no. five, known as the Jungle Carbine. Does this weapon really have a wandering zero? And how is that possible? What causes it? Uh, the Lee Enfield number no. five is is it's called the Jungle Carbine. It's it's a um, a shortened number no. four rifle with a uh, rubber butt pad on one on the uh, buttstock end, and it has uh, a cut down forearm and a, a shortened barrel and a flash suppressor, uh, not flash suppressor, flash hider, a cone flash hider, um, front sight assembly put on it. That's that's the quick and the dirty. Um, they came in at the end of the Second World War. They were used. They made them till about 1948, 47, 48. Uh, they used them in a lot of different places. Um, from my understanding, jungle carbine is a little bit of a misnomer. They were used in Malaya. They didn't. They did not make it to the Second World War, but they were used in Malaya, which started right afterwards. It lasted till 1960. Um, they went all kinds of other places. You see them in India. You see them just all kinds of other places um, there have been people who've researched and the British troops going to Norway had them at the end of the war you know the, the ones who were just kind of the cleaning up helping the Norwegians after the German occupation so uh, they were all over the place um, and you know one of the criticisms that's often repeated about them is that they have a wandering zero I have not found this to be the case uh, I have one that my father bought surplus <laughs> a lot of years ago, and I've shot that gun, you know, intermittently over the years. I've never found a wandering zero, where the wandering zero was described as it would be sighted in, it would have at say 100 yards or 100 meters or 100 yards or 200 meters, 200 yards. It would have a specific point of aim. And then when you took it out the next time and used those exact same sight settings and things, the point of impact would be different. The point of impact would, would shift. I, I think that's probably done for, happened for a lot of different reasons. I think one of them is the way they're stocked. Some of them might not have had 
the best wood in the world. The other, the other issue is they they blamed it on the, they did make some milling cuts on it to lighten it up. They blame it on that, but that's that's not the case. I've never found that. Most shooters I've ever talked to, and even now some on the internet, no one can detect a wandering zero. So if there's no wandering zero, why didn't this thing completely replace the number four rifle like they kind of intended it to? And there's two reasons. Number one, they had a glut of number four rifles. And, you know, converting them to this new pattern which is only going to give you a marginal increase. Yeah, it's handier. It does have a little more recoil. Um, you know, there's. it just wasn't, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. And, you know, semi-automatic rifles were on the brink. You know, they were get, they were developing their own bullpup rifle. They would later, they would later have the, uh, the SLR, which is their version of the FNFAL. I mean, it's it just that's what it is. I mean, that the technology was leaving um, bolt action carbines behind, and there's never really been that tremendously successful one. You know, most countries that have a carbine version of their long rifle in the same caliber um, usually have some level, not all, but some level of disappointment with it. Um, you know, it, it's there's no free lunch, and so you make something smaller and lighter, it's going to recoil more. It may not have the absolute long range. You know, there there can be a whole bunch of debits there that are um, that are part of this whole thing. So, you know, the the era of that, it was a good stopgap, and it was a handy, you know, kind of better rifle. But it was nothing they were going to invest in, and especially Britain. You know, after World War II, the British were broke. You know, I just we'll just say it for what it is. Um, they were broke. <laughs> they, you know, they they weren't going to invest in that. They, what money they had for modernization was going to go towards a semi-automatic rifle. But the number five jungle carbine is an outstanding, outstanding rifle. I mean, it 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 really is very cool. It looks cool, which is always a plus. You know, that may not be the most important thing, but it's always a plus. And it, and it shoots it shoots very well in my in my experience it shoots very well the experience of others it shoots shoots very well okay next question why was the SKS used so much after World War two when the AK-47 was adopted in 1947 uh, there's two reasons for that and that's a that's a good question because it's perplexing the easiest question is saying, well, they were just cranking out SKSs and then they had, you know, all these other countries they needed to arm, so it was just a good answer. That's partially true. The other one was the AK-47 wasn't a sure thing. The first couple of iterations of that, um, they couldn't make the uh, stamped receiver work, so they had to go back to a milled receiver. Uh, I'm sure there were some doctrinal issues where they thought, do we give the AK-47 to our entire army or is it going to be kind of an automatic rifleman type weapon there were a few things it, it was never a foregone conclusion that the AK-47 would be number one as successful as it was and number two uh, that it would be as easy to produce as it was and that it would even be you know tactically used as an every soldier general issue weapon so uh, meanwhile, they had factories that were tooled up for the SKS, which were cranking them out, and they had a lot of people to arm. They had all of their, they had all their uh, Warsaw Pact people. They had to arm. They had all the Western military districts of the Soviet Union. They had Chinese Communist allies. They had to arm. They, they, you know, there were a lot of. As a matter of fact. The need for weapons, modern weapons, was so great that they even had these countries, a lot of these countries, Yugoslavia is one, I think East Germany was another, um, Albania was another, China was certainly another. They even had these these people making SKSs, you know, so, so there was an insatiable appetite for these as a modern military rifle to, to you know, replace in frontline service the Moisin the Gant rifles and carbines that were uh, uh, 
that were the prevalent thing. Every, everybody knew that you know you had to modernize, and this was a way to go. Um, yeah, by the mid 1950s, and certainly by the late 1950s, the SKS was clearly second line. But you know, sometimes you don't give your most modern piece of military kit. You just don't give those away to everybody who's got a handout. So if you've got allies in Africa, you've got allies in Asia, or you got guerrilla groups, um, you know, they might get SKSs. I think, you know, North Vietnamese Army had a lot of SKSs, probably mostly Chinese, I believe, but probably a mix of everything. Because early, early on in the Vietnam War, you know, they had a mix of everything. You know, there was there was stuff that they'd gotten from the nationalist Chinese that were, that were given to them. Old German weapons were given to them. I mean, they literally were, everybody was pouring what they kind of, you know, it's just a natural thing. They're going to empty out the warehouses, just like what's happening with Ukraine now. Western countries emptying out their warehouses going, yeah, we don't need these 30 old leopard tanks anymore. They're sitting here rusting. So we'll give it to those guys. And um, so it was the same kind of thing, clearing out all that old stock and the old equipment and giving it to, you know, the people who had their handouts. So um, that's why the SKS was so prevalent and so used. It's a, it's a very good rifle. The SKS is a very good rifle. Uh, it suffers from the one, it's one malignancy, I will say, is uh, the clip loading of the 10-round uh, box magazine I always thought that the Chinese actually had a 20 round box magazine uh, they were actually they were actually sold here as parts for a while years and years ago um, and I always thought that was a better idea for the SKS uh, at least you had you know you had 20 rounds and, and 20 rounds better than 10 rounds I think so um, but anyway that's why it was used and and then later the AK-47 just you know replaced everything I think certainly by 1975-1980 um, anybody and everybody were getting AKs because they were rolling off the lines and I'm sure that the SKS is uh, uh, pretty much had been uh, shut off although I think the, um, the Yugoslavian ones were uh, Yugo model M1959 slash 66 66 being the uh, time it was uh, updated with the grenade launcher so those, those things kind of hung on to about the mid 60s but by the mid 70s you know it was all AKs okay here's the next question this is an interesting one was the P14 Enfield rifle better than the Canadian Ross Mark III rifle and if so why didn't the Canadians use the P14 Okay, to give this some quick context, World War One, Canada had their own rifle, um, the Ross rifle, gone through everything Ross Mark One. It was a straight pull rifle, actually pretty cool. Um, it was never, it, it had deficiencies that had to be corrected along the way, um, and they found that when they got to the end result, which was the Mark III, um, it still wasn't as good as the SMLE. So, about 1915. Was it 1915, 1916? They were pulling these things away, just using them for training, you know, and which is fine, you know, that's that's the way it goes. Some some weapons work out, some don't. It was a straight pull rifle with a five round magazine. Um, had a good reputation for accuracy, and of course it was in the 303 cartridge. The um, the P14 Enfield was. The 303 British version of the P-13, which is the rifle they designed after the Boer War when they felt that their musketry and their rifles were being outclassed by the Boers with Mausers. So they essentially designed a Mauser-style rifle uh, to give them parity with any future foes that would, um, that would have Mauser-type rifles. They thought the SMLE is, is kind of done. So what happens is they, they have this design finalized in 1913. Yeah, bad year. <laughs> um, they make a few hundred for trials and things. They find out it needs this, it needs that, it burns out barrels. So they can't really put it into production. The very next year, the war happens. August 1914, the war happens. They're never going to change calibers, and they really don't 
want to try to retool. They, they're going to need every rifle they can lay their hands on. And um, so what they did was uh, they went to the United States to a couple different companies and said, Winchester, Remington, and Remington Eddystone, can you make these? Because it was simpler to make than the Lee Enfield. We could tool up and do it faster. So we said, fine. We produced, I can't remember, I think we produced over a million of these things. Um, I have one. They shoot great. They're, so, they're such nice rifles. We shipped them to the British. They didn't like them. Uh, they didn't like them for a couple of reasons. Number one, they found that the attributes of the SMLE, which were found lacking in Africa, which was, you know, the sights on it are kind of crude. They're a tangent sight, kind of, kind of look like almost like AK sights. You know, it's an, it, it really kind of looks like that. It's almost like a, you know, it's far forward. But they turn out that for the combat ranges in trench warfare, that was outstanding. It was a good sight. It was a good gun, good sight. Uh, it wasn't very, it wasn't susceptible to mud. It held ten rounds, which was something we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so it was the SMLE turns out hey this is this is really ideal you know it's people will get angry but it was better than the German Mauser in my opinion I mean when you're talking short ranges capacity hitting power yes on the target range it's going to get smoked by a by a Mauser you know it'll get smoked that's just the way it is but um, you know it's it shoots it's it's a good a really good rifle for the kind of combat they were in so they looked out there so meanwhile they have a million p14s um they had decided and by this time british rifle production had never had the shortfall they thought it would um so really the p14 order was kind of no no historian will tell you this but the p14 order was kind of panicking they kind of panicked they said we're going to need rifles this is a 303 rifle. They can make it. We can pay for it. There it is. And so uh, they had a million of these things on hand. And they didn't really like them because there were some complaints about they, they were more susceptible in the mud. They had only the five-shot magazine. Um, as it turned out, though, uh, they were adapted. Some of the, a few were adapted for sniping because they were found to be quite accurate. Um, and you know, when you look at pictures, you, you do see them occasionally in both world wars, uh, British troops with them, which is kind of odd. You know, you you would think it would be totally gone, but it wasn't. So anyway, the um, I don't think there was ever an initiative to say the Ross is crummy, so rather than waiting for Canadians to come over here and give them SMLEs, why don't we just give them the P-14s that are rolling off the assembly line? There was just no, I don't think that thinking ever crossed their minds. That would have been an interesting, that would have been interesting. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that would have been a good thing or a bad thing, but it would have been very interesting. You know, just divert the rifles. Rather than try to ship them over to England, you just ship them to Canada, they give them to the troops there, and they go over to France. That that would have probably made more sense. Uh, and of course, the, the P-14 was developed into the extremely excellent uh, USM-1917 rifle. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people don't like that rifle very much in some ways but I think it is absolutely outstanding and uh, um, yeah it, it was a it was a British design originally so there you go I don't know why the Canadians didn't use it it would have probably made more sense okay oh and you know when it comes to when it comes to p14 I'll add a few few little notes here um, the British gave them away to anybody who would take them after the war, basically. I think it was the, I can't remember if it's the Lithuanians or the Latvians had them. Um, you know, they, they gave them, yeah, they, <clears throat> the Lithuanians, I can't remember which one of the Baltic republics it was, but while they were free, you know, they, they eventually got taken over by the Soviet Union, but while they were free, they were re-equipped, re and you'll see pictures of them. They have kind of the you know, usual wool trench coat that 
was was common in the First World War. They'll have German helmets, you know, the 1916 and 1917 style helms, and they'll have P-14 Enfields. It's really an odd collection of uh, of gear they have. So they they kind of look like Germans, but they have the British rifle, but they don't really completely look like Germans because the the coat's a little different, you know. So they have that. Uh, they were also I'm sure given away to all kinds of um, any other kind of things. I think some of them, and I'm not sure, but I, I think I remember reading that some of them went to um, uh, some of them went to the Spanish Civil War. So I, I just did a quick pause there so I could just look up really fast on the internet. And it goes, service history in service 1916 to present. This is for the pattern 1914 rifle 303 what we call the p14 and uh it was used in world war one the estonian war of independence the spanish civil war world war ii korean war portuguese colonial war 1958 lebanon crisis civil war and the soviet afghan war Okay, for users, it's even more interesting. We have Afghanistan, Australia, uh, Britain, Canada, which would, you would expect. Afghanistan's a little strange, but, you know, they, the British were always dabbling in and out of there. Uh, nationalist China uh, used them before World War II. Egypt, Estonia, Ethiopian Empire acquired after World War I for them. French used by the Free French Forces World War II. Greece, post-World War II. Latvia, 1918 to 1940. Lithuania, India, Ireland, Israel. Netherlands. Uh, New Zealand, Nigeria, Norway. Uh, Pakistan, Poland, used by the police and the army before World War II. Portugal, Spanish Republic uh, in the Spanish Civil War, and the Union of South Africa supplied to the Union Defense Force to help arm in because of the German invasion of Southwest Africa in 1915. So we have a pretty awesome um, history there for the P-14. They gave them away to a lot of countries there I just mentioned, so... Uh, pretty interesting very interesting history with all that most of the ones I think you see in the United States a lot of them were Greek um, ex-Greek Civil War rifles the one I have is and uh, you know they could have I sure some must have come out of um, Spain in the 1950s probably uh, you know the surplus they were selling off from the Spanish Civil War because they sold off a lot of, you know, Russian Moisin Nagants and a few other things. Used to be you could not get a Moisin Nagant in the United States unless it, um, it all the one, all the examples that were here were ex-Spanish uh, government ones. They had the MP8 symbol on the um, on the buttstock. So uh, you know the the P14 wound up everywhere. That's just a couple of fun facts about it to show you that. You know, this stuff doesn't really go away a lot of times. It gets handed off from user to user to user. So we've gone down that rabbit hole far enough. Let's go to the next question. Oh, this is an interesting one. This is very interesting. Why didn't the USA attempt to upgrade the 1903 Springfield rifle after World War I? And as an example, give it better sights and a 10-round magazine. You know, that would have been very interesting. Um, certainly the Great War should have and I think it did tell people that you know five rounds is just really not enough that there's better solutions out there and part of those solutions um, is a 10 round magazine it, it just seems you know it just seems to be so obvious but you know really um, nobody really upgraded their bolt action rifles I mean, unless you had a Lee Enfield, you didn't have the 10-round magazine. And uh, 
It's very interesting that that never occurred. And I think the reason it did not occur was in the United States, we had been looking for a semi-automatic rifle for a, for a while. Uh, you know, at least 10 years. Uh, when the 1911 pistol came in, people were saying, hey, this is, this is really good. A semi-automatic rifle would be really, really good too. So we were looking for those. And, you know, 1918, 1919, there, there were some nascent designs out there. Uh, another reason was the United States, like the rest of them, they're slashing their military budgets. And, you know, economy is something that, you know, military forces and nations just do. They, they just do it. Um, you know, we're talking about a country, the United States, which we had like six or seven hundred thousand, maybe even a million, who knows. Um, low numbers, 1903 Springfields that, face it, if we were going to do the right thing, we would have destroyed them. You know, we, we should have destroyed them. Uh, we knew that they had some technological, metallurgical problems. So, you know, but we kept them because you know what? They did a calculation saying to replace these things. And we're talking in, you know, 19, 19, 19, 20 dollars. If your new rifle costs you $30 a copy, you have a million of them, that's 30 million bucks. Back that now, that's nothing. You know, that, that pays for a couple of uh, crooked congressmen's junkets and Nancy Pelosi to fly on Air Force planes back and forth to the West Coast and all the rest of it. But back then, that was real money and big money. Um, you know, that's back in the day... 1919 what did a model t cost like 200 bucks or something so so 30 million bucks was a lot of money um we probably had enough rifles we could have done that and just given everybody 1917s you know we had plenty of those we should have probably done that but they never took them out and in world war ii these things popped up again and we gave them to troops to train with we gave them to allies and and everything else um, and that was just economy that was just economy so there's no way they were gonna spend another 10 or 15 dollars per rifle to give it a better sight or to give it a, uh, a 10 round magazine you know they just weren't gonna do it and they were gonna save what money they had because there were so many competing requirements face it by the end of World War one we had a lot of obsolete ships all of our airplanes and, and face it, our combat airplanes we borrowed from France. So, uh, you know, we had all these competing requirements. Making a five-shot rifle into a ten-shot rifle just wasn't there. It, it had We had machine guns to buy. We had all kinds of other things that had to happen. Um, and upgrading the rifle, which really wasn't viewed as being very deficient in, in many ways. Um, it just was not a priority. I, I think it should have been a priority. It would have stead, put everyone in good stead for World War II. Um, you know, if you had to use a bolt-action rifle, you'd want to use one with a 10-shot magazine. And we had the technology. We had the air service rifles and everything else that had magazines. We knew how to do that. Um, and it doesn't need to be a detachable magazine. It could be like the Lee Enfield, just, you know, a, a semi-detachable box that's on the bottom that you, you know... Uh, stripper clip ammo into and it, it that would have been a that would have been a decent decent deal and we we knew how to make better sites for it because we did it uh with the um the o3a3 you know we, we figured out how to make better somebody somebody could have figured that out that wasn't that hard that somebody could have figured out something equivalent to that if not that solution um 20 years before so uh, yeah, it's an, it's amazing that, uh, that that did not take place. But I think everybody was looking for, and eventually it, it turned out to be true that the semi-automatic rifle would, would come in and, you know, the M1 rifle being the really the premier semi-automatic rifle of World War II. Really excellent. So, um, you know, just the way it is. Just the way it is. Uh... Why was a five-round capacity considered standard for military bolt-action rifles, except for the Lee-Enfield? 
that's our that's our last question here I would say that's because military leaders in some ways they had a lot of conflicting feelings one is you're gonna have mass it's one of the nine principles of war at least in the United States and uh, you know mass means you've you've got a lot of people concentrated in a small area and they're producing firepower so an individual guy doesn't need 10 rounds because he's gonna be surrounded by guys who are firing too he's gonna be able to take the the extra moment or two and recharge his his magazine so you know you have you have that thing of mass um, you know same thing why was the Moisen Nagant essentially a very effective rifle during World War II I mean you know Soviet Army used it more than anything else really uh, and that same way you know you have you have a hundred guys in a small area firing firing rounds you know yeah some guys are going to be loading some guys are firing and it's it just it is what it is um, so it's it's it was sufficient another reason is and this is a this is a kind of obtuse um, idea but you know most of these rifles were essentially adopted in late 1880s early 1890s um, especially if you take a look at a rifle like the Krag you look at some of these some of these other ones the ones that have magazine cutoffs um, that tells me when you have a magazine cutoff on your rifle that tells me that you are essentially expecting your troops to use them as single shots as they had since the Civil War we had cartridge single shot rifles and that the the reserve in your magazine the four or five rounds um, in your magazine you'd flip that cutoff when the enemy charged or there was a cavalry charge or there was some event where you needed to to rapid fire so you know a part of it was the old-fashioned and a lot of these guys who were adopting weapons back then hey they remember the uh, they remember the old muzzle-loading days <laughs> or the days where a single-shot rifle was basically sufficient now they knew they had to modernize and kind of keep up but you know they were still kind of stuck in the past a little bit and there's always that military fear from the 19th century and it actually even kind of was pervasive uh, um, in the in the early 20th century that the more rounds you give these people the more they're gonna waste that means the more we have to produce the more we have to um, cart to the front the more we have to you know we have to do all this other stuff um, and these guys are just gonna waste it anyway whereas if we if we kind of I don't want to use the word ration but if we kind of have a controlled supply rate these guys are gonna you know pick their shots it's a stupid way of thinking a very stupid way of thinking but that's what they were thinking I mean how many times have you have you heard well you know especially in the Civil War well there was you know why not give people Henry repeaters well one of the reasons is well they just go through too much ammunition <laughs> so um, there's a lot of reasons why they the establishment the military establishment the older generals and a lot of these generals were a lot older they're a lot older than the generals that are around now um, in those days some armies didn't even have a retirement list so you know when you were about you know 75 years old they probably didn't give you anything to do but you were still a general in the army uh, Winfield Scott was that way at the beginning of the Civil War he was like 70 something years old and they knew he was too old for the field but he was still a general on active duty there was no retirement list you 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 just didn't retire you know there was no mechanism to retire so uh, very interesting but I think the reason five rounds were there was that was just kind of a design a design parameter you could do the internal box magazine it didn't really snag on anything although I've, I've never seen a Lee Enfield snag on anything now now granted I haven't been running around hedgerows with it you know um, 
doing I've never used it in any kind of a tactical sense but I just don't feel that that it was a that a magazine which protruded from the bottom of a rifle was that big of a snagging hazard um, and especially when you look at designs like the Mosin Nagant, the Carcano, which, you know, yeah, they, they kind of do, there's those Manlicker or those straight magazines are kind of there, but, you know, the, the real deal is they're kind of contoured, so even if you did bump up against something, it's not going to snag, it's just going to kind of ride along down the trigger guard. So, you know, I think it was just a lot of convenience, a lot of design, and, uh, I'm sure that there were some military specifications that, that said that, and uh, uh, it's amazing how an obvious answer was just not that obvious. Well, uh, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is, and until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>